to corners of the world where people persevere through deprivation and denial of basic sustenance. As dean of the School of Social Service Administration, I can tell you that SSA students spend months at a time working with global relief and human service agencies on the ground in Africa, in South and Central America, Asia, and the European continent. SSA students provide support to help families, especially those with children, find housing, water, food, and wellness. SSA students, especially PhD student Jessica Darrow, who has spent much time in Rwanda, helped to organize and publicize today's Chicago Promise event. We're excited about our students' involvement in global work, and we are Thank you. 
September of 05, really building upon the work that Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, who will hear later, uh, created with Jeff's vision, how to implement the Millennium Development Goals. And instead of just talking about it, Jeff decided to do something about it practically. And his team with at the Earth Institute decided to uh, launch this work in 10 different countries in Sub-Saharan Africa as part of the Earth Institute. And Millennium Promise was formed about a year later in September 45 to really build upon this work. So what is Millennium Promise? Millennium Promise is an organization whose mission it is is to, develop, is to deliver and implement the Millennium Development Goals. Eight goals focused on hunger, disease, and health. And, it, and these are time-bound, measurable goals that were created and came out of the United Nations. All 191 countries approved and signed off on that. Not like the last time you'll ever see 191 countries agree on anything. And so these, and these were goals that have been endorsed globally. Millennium Promise's flagship initiative is the Millennium Villages. And this is a concept where we, we, we go into villages of 5,000 people as Tracy described, the University of Chicago, speak to you all today, that the citizens of Chicago have adopted a village. And this is a village where, in Kenya, where holistic interventions in food, in water, in healthcare, in malaria control, all, all interventions aimed at delivering these terrific inputs in science to lift these people out of extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is defined by people who try, try to survive on under one dollar a day. One dollar a day. The, the population is 6.2 billion people. 1.1 billion live under, or try to live under, a dollar a day. Another billion and a half live between one to two dollars a day. That's not even defined as a tree of So roughly 43% of the planet is living, or trying to live on under two dollars a day. And that's something that we became, that became a very motivating aspect for all the people of Millennium Promise and our partners. As I mentioned, the village work, we're really focusing on five things in year one. Food, water, healthcare, education, and malaria. And they're very simple interventions. As a businessman, I became attracted to Millennium Promise because it wasn't the it wasn't the premise that we had to wait 15 years for some innovation or some invention. It was how do you get a ten dollar bed net that sleeps two children and can last for five years and greatly reduce that child's chance of contracting malaria into a village? As a businessman, I became fascinated with getting that solution. It was how do you get a single feeding program so children can go to school so they don't have to spend their days trying to gather firewood and other ingredients so they can try to eat a meal a day. It's how do you get the Earth Institute's nutritional program involved in that village so they can, they can create a nutritional meal and a nutritional menu for the students. It was getting the hydrologists at the Earth Institute to figure out safe water access points and how you can create more wells so children don't need to walk two or three miles a day for their daily water, but can walk 100 meters to access water. And probably most importantly, it was how do you use phosphate and fertilize in a region that never even heard of those words into it so you could, you could bring the best of agronomy into the villages so they could grow their own food, 
they can have enough food to feed their families so they can think about diversifying their crops to, to have some chance at income into the level. That's what the Millennium Promise is about. That's what we're doing. Um, and so today is really a call to action. You'll hear more about our program by Jeff. But just the fact that you're here today, the fact that you've endorsed the, 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 the cause, you're here to support Chicago, it's a momentous day because people will read all over the world what the first city in the world has done. It has sponsored a village of 5,000 people that they chose to care about so they can have a better life and show the world that there is a path out of extreme poverty. So with that, it is, I, I, I guess, Jeff, you come out now, or is I'm sorry, I'd introduce Kathy Morrison, and she's gonna actually give a formal introduction on Jeff. I was, again, I'm, I'm, I'm my sincerest gratitude for being here today to, to quote Nelson Mandela, thank you for choosing to care. It is a choice. Thank you. Tracy Poe's leadership 
in Chicago's promise inspires us as well. I think we're here because we know that there's something we can do that we're not doing in our time. And I think there's a palpable feeling throughout this country that there is a time for something better and bigger, and a time for a change, and that we better grab it now before we miss the chance. The world is absolutely filled with paradoxes. The paradox that brings us today is that at a time when wealth is spilling out of technology and innovations beyond anything we could have imagined, anything that the wealthy in our society could even spend in a hundred lifetimes, much less one, we still have one out of six people on the planet, not poor, but as Jeff Luke just reminded you, struggling every day just to stay alive. That's pretty weird. We're here because we have a paradox that the world is closer together and there seems to be more hate than ever before. Makes no sense. We have for the first time really the chance to get to know each other on this planet. And I can say we better do it because the way we're going is a way of fear and division is going to get us all killed in the end if we don't figure out a better path. We have a paradox that our budget just proposed by President Bush last week calls for more military spending than all of the rest of the world combined. Pretty weird. And 150 times more spending on the military, more than 600 billion, than spending on all of Africa, a continent of 750 million people with the greatest struggle of survival, disease, pandemics. And we can't seem to figure out that 150 to 1 ratio, 600 billion for the military, and 4 billion for hundreds of millions of the world's poorest people can't quite be right for this great country. Well, I can say Chicago's had a great weekend so far, because you got off to a very good start as far as I'm concerned the last couple days about doing something about this. And I hope that today we can continue what's been a very good couple of days of sending a message from the Midwest that it's time for a change. I've learned basically one thing from the incredibly lucky and valuable experience that I've had in having the chance to work all over the world and talk with people from all parts of the world and meet with experts in fields that run the gamut not only from my home base of economics, but to the malariologists, the agronomists, the hydrologists, the nutritionists, the engineers, the people that Jeff Luke mentioned a few minutes ago. The thing I've learned is that that paradox of a world of unbelievable 
wealth and technological prowess, the one we're lucky to have and help to have led in this country, and the world of such extreme poverty that perhaps 15 million people in total, 11 million children, will die because in that daily struggle for survival they have, will have lost during this year, that that is a resolvable, solvable paradox. And it's solvable by us. The more you look at it, the more one is amazed that it's being left to be solved because the problems are so profound and so threatening and the solutions are so straightforward and in front of our eyes if we care to look. That that gap between what we can do and what we're doing has led me to believe, though I'm, I'm not so much a forecaster as I am other wanting us to just get on with it, but it's led me to believe that the gap is so big that we're gonna, we're gonna grab it finally. Maybe we're gonna try every dumb thing beforehand before we get to the right thing. But we're finally gonna come around and understand what it's gonna take to make a safer world. We're gonna understand that $600 billion of military spending is not gonna do it for us. We're gonna understand that sending troops to Somalia or to Darfur, strafing huts in Somalia, dropping bombs, that this is never going to lead to security when people are hungry, when they're desperate, when they're dying, when they don't even have enough water to stay alive. And how is more troops going to do it? How's more bombing going to do it? It's not going to do it. So we're going to start to figure out that actually the solutions really are pretty spectacular if we keep our eyes open. Let me tell you one very simple one that I saw last month. Not a surprise, but it looks like a miracle when you see it. I was in Tanzania on two islands off the coast of Tanzania, the islands that constitute Zanzibar, one part of that country. And both the mainland and these islands just off the coast have suffered from malaria, a killer disease spread by mosquitoes from time immemorial. But for dozens of years, straightforward solutions for malaria exist. And those solutions just get better and better because our technology and our science gets better and better. So we've known for quite a while that something as simple as a bed net to fight malaria by protecting people from getting bitten by the mosquitoes that transmit the disease can make a huge difference. But even something as simple as a humble bed net also is a high-tech item these days. That's a little bit of a surprise. But a wonderful company, Sumitomo Chemical Company, in Japan, figured out a few years ago how to put the insecticide that repels the mosquitoes into the resin that is then extruded by the weaving machines to make the nets. And by putting the insecticide right into this resin when the nets are made, 
the insecticide keeps coming out of the fiber onto the surface of the nets for a five-year period of time. And the technology is so good and so clever that for five bucks, you get a mosquito net which repels malaria mosquitoes for five years. And as Jeff just noted, these nets are big things. Two kids can sleep under them, so you do the arithmetic. It's 50 cents per child per year. Can you believe, by the way, we haven't figured out that we ought to help people living in malaria zones get these bed nets until very, very recently. It's a disease that kills two to three million children a year. Almost by definition, if you're living in a malaria zone, you're impoverished because malaria is a disease which impoverishes communities and makes people sick, causes children to die, brings a community down before a harvest. So just when you're supposed to be collecting the food, there's the rains have come a couple months before, the mosquitoes have bread, they are now transmitting the disease and the community's down just when the, when the crops are supposed to be harvested, so it leads to poverty. It's also pretty hard to get a tourist hotel going in a malaria zone, I can tell you. So we've just wasted years and years watching people die like a spectator sport, except of course we avert our eyes, so we perhaps claim we don't know though there was every reason and, and that we ought to know. Well, in any event, here you have a solution. It's really straightforward. It's crying out for us to do something about it. I've been more or less carrying on about this myself for about eight years. By the way, I'm not so clever, it's just that I happen to have the good luck to see it, and it drove me a little bit crazy eight years ago. That's even before the five Okay, it still could be done. Now it's even better. Well, I was in Zanzibar, finally, and finally with the U.S. government help, by the way, which is a wonderful thing. The government of Tanzania went door to door and handed out the benefits. Finally, they didn't try to sell them under some crazy idea that that's what you do because the people that have malaria and live in malaria zones don't have the money because as I'll tell you in a couple minutes, as shocking as that is, living under a dollar a day doesn't mean you actually even have a dollar. That's a misunderstanding. So they went out door to door, literally, how many sleeping sites do you have? Three, that's, how many do you have here? Okay, now at the same time, another great discovery has come. And that's better medicines to treat malaria, because these nets cut down maybe half the disease burden, or two-thirds, but you still get sick once in a while, just not as much, and with less frequency of very complicated malaria. So here's another story. We had some great medicines called chloroquine, made in World War II, sad to say, by the way, almost all malaria medicines in modern history have been made for wars, you know, for British Army or the U.S. Army fighting in the tropics. 
So they can't even test the medicine anymore. So let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, how absurd this is. This is completely predictable. It's fabulous. It's thrilling. The people in Zanzibar are amazed. But every malariologist that I've talked to in the last decades told me, of course, that's what's going to happen. We know it. So what would it take to do it? Well, you can do a pretty serious, detailed analysis of this. You can estimate how many sleeping sites there are in malarious parts of Africa, for example, where two to three million children will die because we're not making these calculations. Turns out, with pretty good precision, it's about 300 million sleeping sites. 300 million sleeping sites times five bucks for a bed net. $1.5 billion to cover every sleeping site in Africa for five years in malaria South Africa. So that's a unit of account that I'm quite comfortable with. Because what's $1.5 billion? That's the daily Pentagon spending. One day's Pentagon spending. Give the money for complete coverage of Africa for five years. So how about tomorrow's Pentagon spending? Are we serious in what we're doing? Are we saying we don't have the money to do it? Are we thinking we're getting our security somehow? You know, it was found last November in Science Magazine, a pretty frightening, path-breaking article showed that not only does malaria do its devastation, but now the evidence is that when HIV-infected people are co-infected with malaria, that raises the viral load of HIV in the body and it makes transmission of AIDS much more likely. So are we serious about that? You can't get bed nets to mothers and fathers and sons and daughters for one day's Pentagon spending? And if you're wondering about the rest, the medicines, the community health workers, the diagnostics, send me an email, saxofcolumbia.edu, I'll send you paper. For three billion bucks, Two days Pentagon spending. You could get all the medicines, the bed nets, community health workers on salary, the diagnostic kits, everything you need for comprehensive malaria control across Africa. Let me give you another metric. There are one billion of us in the rich world very handily because it makes long division easy. So if something costs three billion bucks, that's three dollars from each of us per year, which is also a good metric because that's one Starbucks, at least in my neighborhood. 
So one Starbucks per person in the rich world per year is comprehensive malaria control. Maybe we in the Pentagon can share it together. But these are the opportunities that are in front of us. This is why it's not crazy to talk about the comprehensive control of malaria, achieving the Millennium Development Goals, or even what I think is our real challenge, and that is ending extreme poverty in our own time by our own generation. Nothing crazy about that. The only thing crazy would be not to do it. It turns out that for every one of the challenges of the poorest of the poor, the paradox of being so poor in a world of such knowledge and wealth is indeed a paradox that comes down on the side of a solution. Let me give you another example. Hunger. Africa is a continent of hunger right now. For years I've been visiting clinics, villages, schools, households in rural Africa. Hunger is pervasive. Stunted children. My wife, who is a pediatrician, showed me a long time ago, you can tell from the hair color of the protein deficiency of the children. You can see that a child that looks like seven and is 12 or 13 has been stunted by chronic undernourishment. So yes, what about it? Well, what about it is just like malaria control. What about it is that when you take a close look at what's really going on underneath this disaster of hundreds of millions of children who will not have a future, because by the time they're in adolescence, they have lost the physical capacity for normal development through chronic and persistent episodes of disease and undernourishment. The what about it is solutions. Solutions that are so simple, it's startling. First thing is that often you go to a village, you see a child with a distended stomach. Now, in the most extreme cases, that's sometimes marasmus or washer or extreme undernourishment. But more often than that, what it is is worm infections. It's worms, a plate full of worms. What about deworming? How hard is that? Well, you want to know? It's one five cent pill every four months. One five cent pill of albendazole or mabendazole given to the kids in school every four months or in less endemic places every six months. And you clear the infection. These are tropical environments. The kids are walking barefoot, they're walking through water where this transmission is easy. So unlike us in our cement and brick and asphalt cities with running water and so on, they will get infected. But the infection can be cleared so that the burden doesn't 
continue to load because what worm infections are a stomach like that is more and more and more infections, each one coming from the ingestion of unsafe water. Five cents clears it and keeps the burden low. What else can you do about hunger? Well, there's a chronic shortage of food production. Solutions? Damn right there's solutions. Shouldn't say that here. Darn right there are solutions. There are real, practical, straightforward solutions. Crops need nutrients just like we do. And when you look at what's happening in African villages, the poorest farmers can't afford fertilizer. And without the fertilizer, they also can't afford and can't make use of high-yield seeds. And the result is farmers are planting year in, year out with a kind of unimproved seed variety and no soil nutrients so that predictably the crops are failing. It's a horror to think of this, but a hundred million farmers are out working the fields every day in Africa. And I'm talking about the women they're the ones doing the hard work. They're out in the fields, working round the year in back-breaking labor, and it is biophysically impossible for them to get a decent crop. That's a scandal on our part, because we're watching them do it. And then we blame politics or something else. All sorts of explanations given in Washington by people that have never stepped foot in a village don't know the first thing that they're talking about and have never really paid attention to care. Well, these crops in one season can triple or quadruple. I've watched this before my eyes now on several occasions. And it's just like my wife showing me the undernourishment of a child by the ginger-colored hair meaning a certain kind of protein deficiency, my agronomist buddies take me out to the cornfields and show me that when it's yellow on the corn stalk instead of green for the maize, that means nitrogen deficiency. Because they're not putting in urea-based nitrogen or diammonium phosphate or all the standard things that in all the other parts of the world are used. So what happens? The farmers get one-third of the yield that they would get. They might get one ton for their hectare, which is two and a half acres. Whereas they should be getting three tons or four tons or five tons of maize. Then it turns out they can't feed their families even because one ton is not enough to feed the family. And so you have a syndrome which we call sub-subsistence. It means you're not even growing enough to feed your family, much less to bring your goods to the market. So I come back to that dollar a day that I mentioned. Don't think you're getting the dollar at the end of the day. What that is is a statistician has come in and said, okay, one ton of maize at $200 per metric ton, that's $200 earning. It's not even cash. That's why you can't buy a five-month medment. These are non-monetized economies right now. They don't have enough to bring to the market. 
So you bring some fertilizer and you bring some seed, and the crops triple in yield. That means per each acre. And then the farmers say, yeah, now we can plant farther afield as well. So the total food output goes up five times. And that's what we've seen in the villages where we're working across Africa. It's called a miracle. It looks like a miracle. It feels like a miracle to the people. It's basic agronomy 101. Now, in truth, I never took agronomy 101. So I didn't know it. But the people that did do know it. And they've been telling us and telling our policymakers, let's get on with it. You know what we do instead? We don't do anything. We wait for the famine. We sometimes send food relief, although sending food relief after a famine, that just doesn't make it. And then we ask, why can't those people take care of themselves? That's what we're doing. We're just letting people die by the millions. What happens when people die by the millions? You get pandemic diseases. You get the spread of uncontrolled infection. You might think someone would know that there's a risk that somehow a new disease might arise that would spread to an unprotected population and might threaten the world. And it wouldn't be a Michael Crichton science fiction novel, it would be called AIDS. People might have thought that somehow you don't leave a continent fulminant with disease and think it's safe for the world, because it isn't. And to think about H5N1 avian flu, where it's recombinant in which impoverished places in Africa without disease surveillance, public health, veterinary medicine, and so forth, that's what we have. And we think this is safe for us. And then you know what people that don't have enough to eat do also? They die, of course. But they also fight. They struggle for their survival. They become refugees. They move to other areas. They encroach on other populations. What do politicians do when that happens? They foment hatred between groups. And sure as can be, hungry people find themselves in conflict. And that's not just a, a gloss of mine. That's what the statistical data show. Do you know the statistics are very clear that when the rains fail in Africa, the probability of war rises significantly? Isn't that a horror? I find that shocking. It's a measure of how close to the edge of survival people are living, that failures of rain trigger war. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're seeing in Darfur. We will not solve Darfur by sanctions. We will not solve Darfur by peacekeepers. We will not solve Darfur by disinvestment. All those things which we want are not getting to the nub of the crisis in Darfur. 
The nub of the crisis in Darfur is that it's just one of the poorest places on the entire planet, and there's not enough water and food and health care and veterinary care for the people to stay alive. And unless we recognize that, we don't stand a chance of a solution. I'm not talking about praising any government or absolving any government. There's tremendous irresponsibility. But it's hunger at the core of it that's the instability. Same with Somalia right now. You can talk about it as politics, but if you don't talk about it as hungry people, you're not going to understand the politics. Well, I was asked by Kofi Annan a few years ago, most remarkable person and most remarkably vilified by our right wing in this country, to have a look at what the practical things are that could be done to help people stay alive and get out of poverty. So I was asked to advise on these Millennium Development Goals and asked to help come up with practical plans of action. One thing I learned right away is that everywhere in the world people were ready to jump up and contribute to finding that out. So we had 250 scientists from around the world working on a purely voluntary basis to contribute. We talked to the agronomists, the malariologists, AIDS, and all the rest, and they each came up with very practical things to do. Then we went to the government and said, let's do it, and we were told, sorry, we have war going on, we have budget constraints, we have all the rest. Budget constraints, well, cut taxes for the rich for $300 billion, raise military spending $300 billion, then you'll have the budget constraint for the poor. A little weird. But it also made me think, and it was very lucky that it did, because I spent a lot of time in, in finance ministries and so on, and this was a bit of a wake-up call for me. Let's get real, maybe the solutions aren't going to go through Washington, at least not at the start. Maybe the solutions are going to come through Rockefeller Memorial Chapel, or Chicago Promise, or Millennium Promise. And indeed, since, as you can tell, what I do for a living is I complain. <laughs> I was complaining to a wonderful, wealthy trustee of Columbia University about this. And he said, well, how much would it cost to do this in a village? We made some calculations. And he took out a checkbook, said, here's $5 million. Why don't you get started? Literally. That was an eye-opener. We did get started in Kenya then in Ethiopia with another donor. Then the government of Japan said that they would help set up eight research villages. Then George Soros contributed $50 million. And many, many other people from all over the world said they wanted to be part of it. Something absolutely fantastic happened. And that is that the world's richest people and the world's poorest people became partners. 
That's the only way our planet's ever going to work. And that's why we're here today. I think every one of you knows that your own safety and my safety, and especially our kids' safety, depends now on us getting this right. This world could still spin out of control. It may seem like a long time to January of 2009. A lot of dangers ahead. And we gotta be proactive if we're gonna head off these dangers. The world's shown over and over again that it can get into self-fulfilling crises of violence that end up spinning completely out of control. And we're at that risk right now. But fortunately, the American people are also with eyes open now. And they're seeing that the panic, that approach won't work. So we're, we're looking for something new right now. Now we have to find a way each of us can be engaged. Absolutely, we have to be engaged as citizens, asking every presidential candidate, including your native son, what are they going to do about this? Is it going to be war 24-7? It's going to be military tough talk 24 7 or are we going to attend to human needs on the planet? That's what we have to do as citizens. But then we have to find ways for all of us to contribute in our other dimensions of our lives. If you're a business person, your business has something to contribute. If you are a student, your student organizations have something to if you're an engineer, if you're someone that works with technology, you surely have something clever to contribute to this. If you're a billionaire, let me remind you of my email address. <laughs> you certainly have something to contribute, because there ain't no way in the world you can spend your money on yourself. Hard as you try, it just grows faster than you can manage. So all of us, all of us have to keep this promise that the world made. We're here because Chicago is going to keep Chicago's promise. We're here because all of us in this new millennium are going to keep the millennium promise. Thank you very much.
partner with Yanyu Village in Kenya. So it wasn't chosen, there was no master plan. It was literally about 20 people in a room having coffee saying, what can we do to take action um, on the words that we had heard uh, Dr. Sachs speak. So, having dispensed with that one myself, I wanted to um, ask, we have a question here from uh, someone who actually gave me their name, Casey Blue James from Walter Payton College Prep, one of the high schools that's represented here, one of our wonderful public high schools in Chicago. And the question is, as youth concerned about poverty, how can we promote your ideas about ending extreme poverty? Besides putting pressure on politicians, what can youth actually do to be proactive? Well, first, uh, let me uh, say one thing uh, more about uh, the villages, uh, if I could, about where they are and, and why they're where they are. Uh, we identified the poorest places and the poorest continent what we call the hunger hotspots, and we went after those. So the idea wasn't to pick an easy place for an easy solution, but to show that these solutions could work in the very toughest parts of the toughest development challenge in the world. And we chose places around Africa that had two characteristics. One was, or three, impoverishment, a selection of different ecologies. So some are highlands, some are lowlands, some are rainforest, some are desert. And third, where the governments wanted to be engaged. And by that set of uh, criteria, we came to 12 sites in 10 countries. What we're finding now, though, is that more governments want to contribute and, uh, and, and participate. Uh, so I think that this is a, a project that will expand throughout Africa. Now, what can you do? First, take on, take on the assignment. I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, I get to give homework. Your homework is end extreme poverty by 2025. But it's open book. And you can work in groups. So don't panic. It's a good assignment, and it's one that can work. You're going to figure out a lot. Every day, I have to turn to my 11-year-old daughter to get latest tips on the internet. You know more than we do about how to make the connectivity work. Connectivity is where it's at to get the solutions. It's to understand the practical challenges. It's to figure out how to really partner. It's to identify needs. In the short term, buy a bed net. Ten bucks. Go to the website www.malarianomore.org. Buy a ten-buck bed net. Save a life today. It's really a profound gift that we can do that. So simple. And I can tell you, I can tell you for sure, the net's going to get to where it needs to go. So this is something that schools can do, take up a curriculum to understand it, but keep adding to the knowledge base. Partner with Chicago Promise. Join in, make a financial contribution, have a spring dance, raise funds, get student groups from around uh, your league, your school league to share in this. We've got one group of three universities uh, at College, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Duke, all three of them working together to promote a Millennium Village. College students, 
Get your universities to take on a village and get your faculty engaged so you can be engaged. We want a consortium of universities to be leading our side of the partnership as well. Getting some of the academic and technical knowledge in through a nationwide partnership. Send good ideas. We've learned more from Tracy and others about what to do than we can conceivably think of on our own. So get engaged and become a problem solver. Thanks, Jeff. And you can find Chicago Promise at uh, info at chicagopromise.org where you can donate to the www.chicagopromise.com. So you can get involved with Chicago's own village today if you want to. And we're also looking for volunteers to help with our public education programs, which begin rolling out today. Um, so the next question was a more local question, and I believe this one comes from Lawndale. In addition to helping people in Africa, how do we help the poorly educated, hungry, homeless people in our own communities? How can we help these people empower themselves so that they can become philanthropists and become engaged in this work? First, as I'm sure you're, you're all fully aware, and it's been my experience, uh, philanthropy and generosity uh, knows no limits in uh, either side of uh, the income uh, spectrum, by the way. But the poorest of the poor have been fabulous contributors to the even poorer of the poor uh, in other places. And we were reminiscing about one story that I just want to share with you very briefly about a village in western Kenya where after the bumper harvest, we came back to the village a few months later and what had the villagers done with, its, with their surplus? They took us to a clearing where they had built with wooden poles and adobe and corrugated roofs, so very basic, they had built housing. And they said, you know what that is, Professor? I said, no. They said, well, that's housing for the poor in our village. I couldn't believe it. First, I thought everyone was extraordinarily poor, which they are, but they had, of course, gradations, which for them were very vivid, and they built housing for the widows, basically, in the village. Now, that's giving back. That was after the first harvest. The human instinct and will to give back is so incredibly strong. Now, we got to do something about our own poor in this country because it's really been in the bottom for a while now. The poor here are suffering too. They're not suffering and dying, thank God, like the situation that I was describing of the extreme poverty of lack of water, food, dollar medicine, but people are suffering here as well. And what did we do when people were suffering here and the income divide started? Well, we cut taxes for the rich. That was really, I can tell you as a macroeconomist, to put my other hat on, that was a very weird answer. Absolutely no justification. And it's not going to last either. Simple arithmetic that it's going to go away. But it is kind of a mindset that we have here also. Even our own poor, we saw how blind we are in New Orleans and the debacle afterwards. Well, I think we know some people that are going to start talking about this. I thought we had a good discussion yesterday in the launch of the presidential campaign, and I think we're going to see more of this. We got to get our own country back on even keel as well. But for one moment, don't ever believe that it's our poor 
There's enough wealth and technology and knowledge to go around, believe me. We don't have to make those phony choices. We really can address the needs of people to ensure dignity and health for everybody, everywhere in the world. It's really interesting for us involved in this project. What we are doing is helping to empower the community to take on its challenges. Millennium Promise, working in the Millennium Villages, does not plant one single seed, does not deliver one single bed net, does not treat one single patient. What Millennium Promise does in the Millennium Villages is provide the basic tools, the bed nets, the seeds, the fertilizer, the clinical equipment, and so forth, so that communities can lead their own way. This is not a project as wonderful as some of those projects are. This is not a project of outsiders coming in and building buildings or planting trees or doing other things. This is not like Habitat for Humanity, and people are familiar with that. All the work, 100%, is done in the communities. There are no expats in the communities. Local people are hired to lead the project, or at least nationals. Are, are leading the project. So this is not an expatriate project. It's an empowering project by helping the poorest of the poor get the tools that they need. And when I say tools, I mean things like deworming medicines and med nets, not just hammers and nails. In this sense, the community has to be empowered from the first moment, otherwise there's no project. Nothing's being done but what the community's doing. And boy, are they invigorated because it's tough to be going through life without any tools. It's tough to be planted without fertilizer and improved seeds. It's tough to see your children coming down with malaria six times a year. And it's awfully tough to have a child die in your arms on the way to a clinic. And that's the real experience of countless millions of people. So this is a community empowerment project. Now what lasts after five years is that by raising the productivity of these communities, by enabling them to diversify their crops, start new businesses, get microfinance going, the community is lifted above the subsistence line and thereby given a margin that it can start to save for its own future. The community is not made rich in this process. This isn't about making an impoverished community wealthy. This is about making an impoverished community viable. Viable to begin a walk up the development ladder on its own. And so that's the standard. Will the community after five years be with enough crop productivity, enough diversification, enough small business, enough microfinance, that it can meet its basic needs and save and invest for the future. That's the goal. There's every reason to believe it. That's the idea of community empowerment. I just want to make sure that I say again a thank you to all of you at the University of Chicago who made this event possible today. Um, Jean Marsh and Kathy Morrison, who we heard from earlier, but particularly um, your wonderful community members, Maureen Laughlin and Jessica Darrow, two of our Chicago Promise committee members who have worked so hard to get us together today. I want to say thank you to you before I, I, I hand it over. So this last question.
we actually didn't have you wear your macroeconomist hat, so you don't have to, um, you get to do that. This is one about China. What effect do you think the emergence of China as a global economic power will have on poverty in Africa, especially in consideration of their recent investments uh, in infrastructure and their visits to the African nations? Well, I can tell you wonderful restaurants are going up all over Africa. Uh, and not just that, uh, lots of roads uh, and lots of income generation. I'm pretty bullish, both about China's rise in the world, because I think that this is, for us, a matter of our safety, not a risk, as long as we manage without panic, and as long as we manage without fantasies of superiority or fantasies of trying to maintain our hegemony or whatever one wants to call it, as long as we understand that the catching up of other parts of the world is to the mutual advantage of all of the rest of I think we'll do just fine. If China's providing the single most important medicine for Africa now and for malaria control, that's a sign of the science that's going to come, and we will be beneficiaries of that as well. So, first of all, I like China's development and believe that this is finally the sharing or spreading of technology, science, and rationality after disaster after disaster that befell that country. I think as China takes more interest in Africa, exercises its geopolitical weight as well as its economic weight, it's likely to be good. What you've been reading is lots of stories of uh, China doesn't impose the same standards, China isn't as much for human rights and so forth. The fact of the matter is that, unfortunately, Europe and the United States basically neglected Africa or used it for Cold War politics for half a century. And China's now saying, wait a minute, you're not alone. We also have our geopolitical interests as well. And it's even causing a kind of waking up that this is a place of interest for the world as well. So, I think what's happening in a purely economic sense is an invigoration of the Indian Ocean economy. It's China, it's India, it's Southeast Asia, it's East Africa. And you feel that weight and that pull. And to a macro development economist like myself, that feels good. Of course, making these relations work, having China contribute truly to Africa's needs as well is work that lies ahead. I spoke to the Chinese leadership on several occasions during the past year. I'm optimistic that they're going to play their role and that they're going to play it constructively. The most important thing for us in this world is to break the mindset of us versus them. And the most important thing is for us to understand we're all in it together. And if we act accordingly in that way, success. Thank you very much for a wonderful chance to be here.